Well, as Trey commented earlier, it is such a blessing to hear congregational singing. You know, when we come together to worship uh, in church, when we come together as God's people on the Lord's Day, we're not coming to hear uh, a bunch of folks on the stage with instruments and, you know, lovely voices. Uh, We're coming to sing together. We're coming to engage in congregational singing. So maybe you've been in a church before where uh, what's going on up here is so loud that you really just cannot hear one another singing God's praises. And though sometimes that happens, we have tried to make it where that's not the case, recognizing that what we're doing is singing together. And so what a joy to hear each other's voices, to hear the collective praises of God's people. What a picture of heaven when we think about the, the, the things that show us heaven, show us what it will be like to be in heaven with the Lord, to be in the new heaven and new earth. This is one of those things that points most immediately to all of that, singing God's praises together. Of course, in that day, it will be an untold number of people and angels singing God's praises. We, our ears would be blown away if we didn't have those heavenly glorified ears to hear all of those praises with. If you would, go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 12. Today we are in verses 1 to 13. We are situated in the space between the ninth and tenth plague. So uh, unlike the other plagues, the description of the tenth plague actually happening does not come immediately after the, the one before Uh, which was the case before. We had the first, the second, the third, all the way up to the ninth. Well, then we get a a lot of material between the actual carrying out of the ninth plague and the tenth. And so we're in that space. And let me just say it's very precious biblical space. This is holy ground. Of course, all of Scripture is holy ground, but this is the, the kind of thing that just draws our hearts deeply to the Lord. The back and forth between Pharaoh and Moses has come to an end. Pharaoh's prideful anger has lashed out against Moses. We saw that rage. We saw how pride produces anger when pride is hit. That's the response. And so we see Pharaoh's pride-filled anger lashing out at Moses. He will not let all the animals go with them. He's already said, I mean, come on, I'll, I'll let you take uh, there can, men and women, I'll let you take your children. Fine. But you can't have the animals. And of course, we know that Moses tells him, not a hoof will be left behind. And Pharaoh explodes in anger. He will not let that happen. And he tells Moses, essentially, get out of my face. If I see you again, I will kill you where you stand. Get out of my face. You will not see my face again, lest you die. Before Moses storms out from Pharaoh's presence, he delivers a message from the Lord. And so we get this little delay here. Moses doesn't immediately, he says, okay, as you say, I will not see your face. He doesn't immediately leave Pharaoh's presence. We get a little bit of a delay. And in that period of delay, he delivers a message from Yahweh. God will come through Egypt and strike the firstborn. Just as Pharaoh has taken and oppressed Israel, God's firstborn son, so too will God execute judgment on Egypt by taking their firstborn. And just as those baby Hebrew boys were thrown into the Nile, countless numbers, we don't know how long that lasted, we don't know how many baby Hebrew boys were killed in that way, But just as the Hebrews have been treated, God, the God of justice, the God who always executes his judgment justly, the judge of all the earth, as Abraham said, will the judge of all the earth not do what is right? Of course he will do what is right. If God does it, it is right by definition. Who are we to sit around and discuss whether or not what God does is right? Sinful, mortal, finite human beings. What God does is always right. And so the judge of all the earth, the just judge of all the earth, will execute judgment in this very specific way. 
Chapter 11, verse 5, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. The Israelites have been held in bondage. Their animals have been held, taken from them, stripped from them. All of it has been held in bondage, and God will strike the humans and the animals of Egypt. The Lord also tells Moses to inform the people that he is about to bring them out of Egypt. The Exodus is right around the corner. We call this book the the Exodus. This is the centerpiece of the entire book, and that is about to happen. And as we read last week, the Lord reveals that to Moses. This is coming. It is right around the corner. Pharaoh will not just release the Israelites. Okay, fine, you can go. Women, men, children, animals, go ahead. That's not what's going to happen. Instead, the Lord tells Moses that Pharaoh will drive the people away completely. All of you out, out now, you must go. It will be a requirement. It will be a forced exodus. And God will put favor towards his people in the hearts of the Egyptians. You know, God can do that. In all sorts of ways, God can work in the hearts of people. He worked in each of our hearts. If we're here this morning and we're believers, we are believers not because we were just sort of walking around in life and and with our uh, neutral wills, just deciding what we would do today or not do today. And, And we just happened to hear a message about Jesus and we just happened to choose Christ. We we chose to follow him out of our neutral wills. No. Out of our enslaved wills, our darkened hearts, our blinded minds, Christ came to us and he changed our hearts. He gave us a new heart. He gave us eyes to see. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God shined forth in our hearts. By his grace, God has the power to work in human This encourages us in all sorts of ways, but just consider how it encourages us with our loved ones who don't know the Lord. God can save them in an instance. And what about all of us in the difficulties of life as we think about uh, the the way we get ourselves into all kinds of issues? God has the power to change a person like that. Think about that when you pray for your spouse, when you pray for your kids, small or small grown. God is able to work in all kinds of ways in human hearts. We see that with Pharaoh's hardened heart. We see that with the way that God moved faith into Moses' heart and the way that the people received Moses. And we see it here with the way the Egyptians had favor on God's people. They will ask their neighbors for jewelry or articles of silver and gold, and the Egyptians will say, yes, sure, take it. Your God has blasted us almost off the planet, but here, have our gold, have our silver. Only God could do that. It's miraculous in and of itself that they would have favor and not vehement hatred and poisonous venom towards God's people. The Egyptians have favor towards Israel and all towards Moses. Not only do they have favor towards the Israelites, but they look at Moses in this incredible way. I mean, Moses is up on a pedestal over Pharaoh himself, if they were honest. Of course, they're not going to say that, especially Pharaoh's servants. But Moses has been exalted by the Lord. He has been elevated over even the Pharaoh. And the result will be that Israel will peacefully plunder the Egyptians. That's the language that God gives Moses at the burning bush. He says that the the Egyptians will be plundered. Now, when you think of plundering, you think of war. You think of bloodshed. You think of toppled over walls and ruins. Lots of suffering and death. Well, of course, we've seen that all along through the plagues. But this plundering, this final plundering, will be peaceful. Israelites will not have to take up swords. They will not have to make demands. They will simply ask. And all the wealth of Egypt will be piled upon them. A peaceful 
plundering. All of this will happen. It must happen. There's no turning back for Pharaoh. God is going to bring this about. God is bringing this entire thing to completion. And so we read as we finished last week in chapter 11, verse 9, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Why did Pharaoh not listen to Moses? Well, it is true to say he did not listen because he did not want to listen. It is true to say he did not listen because his heart was filled with pride and rebellion towards God. But it is also true to say that he did not listen because God made it to where he would not listen in order that his glory would shine forth in order that he would be made known. As we've seen many times throughout this portion of Exodus, God doesn't just glorify himself through plagues. He is also doing this through protection. God glorifies himself in the plagues through the plagues themselves, through his punishment and his judgment. But he also glorifies himself through protecting His people, repeatedly, we've seen God protect or shield His people from the plagues. Well, now, as we come to the Passover, we see how God will protect His people from the tenth plague. We see God's ultimate protection of His people. It involves sacrifice and faith. It will define the calendar of God's people moving forward. It is the great pointer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So our title for the sermon this morning is The Passover Introduced. And you will see that up on the screen there, The Passover Introduced. If you will stand with me as we read this precious passage of God's Word. By the way, this is not the actual execution of the Passover. That comes later. This is This is drawn out so we get to talk about it for a while, which is, I think, God's intentions. We are to talk about this for a while. This is an important, very significant point in the history of redemption. But today we just get the Passover introduced, not actually carried out, which we'll come to later. So let's read God's Word together. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. This is the Holy Word of the living God. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Just imagine that picture. And you shall eat it in haste, not leisurely, but quickly. It is the Lord's Passover, or Yahweh's Passover. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing on our time together. Let's ask that he would give us such joy in the Christian gospel. Such joy in the only gospel, the message of redemption through the blood of Christ. Let's ask that God would draw us to Christ this morning in a very unique way. In a special way that we would come face to face with the glory of our Savior And for anyone this morning who is unsaved, unconverted, not a believer, this is ground zero today for the Christian faith. So you've come on the perfect day to hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray and ask that God would be merciful to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. You are kind to us through Christ. You shower us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for our Redeemer. We pray that His glory would shine forth today, God, as we look at the Passover, as we think about these various elements, and as we see it all pointing to Christ. Father, we pray for our children that they would hear of this message of your passing over our sins because of the blood of Christ, that, that they would hear this and see clearly what this whole Christianity thing is all about. This thing they've been raised hearing about. They look around, they see other religions, they see people who don't have any religion, they see people who care nothing for religious things at all. Why should I be a Christian? They may be asking. This is my mom and dad's faith. Why should it be mine? Would they see today why? Would they see today clearly why this is their only hope in life and death? That to not be a Christian truly from the heart is to be condemned where they stand and to be lost with no hope in the world to be swept away inevitably by your holy wrath. God, we pray that you would show this to our kids. You would show it to us. Lord, we pray that we would all come to love Christ more as a result of a passage like this. We pray that our desire to study the person of Jesus, to reflect the character of of Jesus, and to bow to Jesus would grow as a result of our time here today. Be merciful to us, we pray, Father, through Christ our Lord. In his name, amen. So three simple points will occupy our attention this morning, and here they are. The lamb, the meal, and the blood, and as you'll see, these things sort of blend together, so trying to parse these out just based on the frequency of words being used as we go through this passage. But we see these three emphases, and each one given attention in its own right, though they are all bleeding together here in this passage. So the lamb, the meal, and the blood. So let's look first at the lamb. And for that, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. 
when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Whatever calendar, whatever way of organizing time was in place before, it will now have to be redone. A new calendar is needed for Israel. Now is the time for a fresh start, a new day, a new life for the nation. They came into Egypt, you'll remember from the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, they came into Egypt 70 strong. But now they have multiplied exponentially and become a great nation. We've seen them grow and grow and they have become a great nation. God's words to Abraham have been and are being fulfilled. We read these words in Genesis 12, verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation. You know, the biggest theme that emerged when we were going through Genesis for a couple of years was God's faithfulness. That was probably the biggest theme. So far, we've seen God's power and a lot of other things, his sovereignty and so forth. But we see throughout Genesis God's faithfulness, his faithfulness to his promises. How much thought do you give, do you give in practice to the faithfulness of God? Here we are. If you just sort of scroll back a little ways in biblical history, there you are with old Abraham and old barren Sarah. No baby, no child, just a promise. And God kept his promise, and he kept keeping his promise. His promises flowering out of Genesis over and over again, showing his faithfulness, that he does not lie, that he keeps his word, that when God speaks, it can be trusted. The God who gave Abraham a child and created a great nation through that one seed, that one offspring, Isaac, is the same God who is going to bring us home. He's the same God who's going to bring us to the end, who has prepared a place for us, who is going to bring us to glory, going to bring us to everlasting joy. It is this hope And this trust in God's faithfulness to his word that sustains the believer. Where hope is failing, the Christian life is failing. Where trust in what God will do because of what God has said is failing, the Christian life will be fumbling along. How much thought do you give to the faithfulness of God? The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came into Egypt as a family. A big family. They have multiplied in Egypt and become an enslaved people. Now, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, will give them a new start. A new start as a great nation. And we get for the first time this language in verse 3 of Israel as a congregation. We haven't seen that word Yet, in the Bible, this idea of a congregation, of an assembly, of a a gathered group. And what it tells us is that this nation will be a worshiping nation. It goes back to what we've been talking about all along. That God liberated his people for the purpose of worship. It is intrinsic to God's people to be worshipers. This is going to be a worshiping nation. It's going to be centered on Torah. It's going to be centered on the law of God. It's going to be centered on the sacrificial system where God is approached in worship. They will be a worshiping nation. It will define every aspect of life for the people. And this new beginning point is because of the Passover. So we read in verse 2, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So what we're being told is that the Passover sets up and restarts the calendar. And as this event sets and restarts the calendar, it has at its center a lamb. A lamb. The Israelites are to select a lamb on the 10th day of this first month. A lamb for each household. 
But if there are smaller households, lambs can be shared. So we read in verse 4, And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. So there is a kind of collegiality to this. There is a, a communal aspect to this. There is a, a reckoning and accounting and a thinking. So how, many, how much lamb are you going to eat? I, I know I have teenage boys. You know, I, mean, I, I don't, but I'm saying maybe there's an Israelite who has teenage boys. He's thinking, we're going to need a lot of lamb. We're going to need a big one. We're going to need to make sure it's just us who are eating that lamb. But this sort of conversation is beginning to happen among Israelites and their neighbors. They're talking about how much lamb people are going to eat, how small households are. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Since there are many households, there would have been many lambs. But they are not to be selected haphazardly. Now, this is interesting because this is a lot of lambs. This is a ton of lambs. But we're not told that just any lamb will do, that the selection of lambs is just a matter of going out and grabbing one and bringing it on in. But there are very specific instructions as to how these lambs are to be selected. These are unblemished lambs. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. They must be carefully selected, young male lambs without defect. Not just any lamb will do. And as verse 6 says, these lambs and only these lambs are to be killed or slaughtered. And in the context here, what's being presented to us, they are to be sacrificed. Not just slaughtered, but they are to be sacrificed. At the same time, at twilight on the 14th day of the month. So all the Israelites scattered in their homes, knowing that at twilight, between the going down of the sun and full darkness, just a beautiful time of day to take a walk. We all know that time of day. At the, at the very end, just as the sun's gone down, no heat. Well, except for humidity in Georgia. But the sun has gone down, beautiful time, just enough light to do what you need to do right before it turns dark. At that time, all these people gathered in their homes are to kill the lamb. That leaves four days between the 10th day and the 14th day. It leaves four days for the Israelites to care for their lambs. This kind of sort of relationship with their lamb because the lamb itself is ultimately a substitution. And so there's this, this four days of caring for the lamb, making sure the lamb doesn't become blemished, doesn't scratch itself on anything, making sure that the lamb stays safe and secure to ensure that no unforeseen circumstances cause any household to lack a lamb. To make sure that there is no rushing around of God's people at the last minute to find one. You see, the Lord knows human nature. And we all know what this would have looked like. We all know because we know what it looked like this morning. We know exactly what it looks like when we are scurrying around, rushing around, trying to get everything done, trying to get out of the house or get something done. We can imagine if God would have just said, get your lambs when you, when you need to, and then on the 14th, Day of the month, sacrifice those lambs. How many people would have just not had it together? How many people would have procrastinated, waited to the last minute? How many people would have taken it lightly? No, we see God's grace here. We see God's grace in ensuring their preservation, ensuring their protection, in meeting them in their human frailty, undoubtedly. And so four days before, you are to get the lamb. Before we look at what the Israelites were supposed to do with this lamb, I want us to see the way Jesus is referred to in the New Testament. This beautiful picture of John the Baptist out preaching, looking kind of rough, and all, everyone is out there listening to him. He, he's an Elijah-like figure out there preaching and baptizing in the Jordan River. And he sees Christ coming. He sees Jesus of Nazareth coming. 
And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Echoing all the language of Lamb throughout all of Scripture. Going all the way back, of course, to the Passover. Revelation 5, verse 12. Jesus is referred to as the Lamb who was slain. But he's not just referred to generally as a slain lamb or a slaughtered lamb or a sacrificed lamb. Specifically, Christ is referred to as the Passover lamb. So we're not working here with some sort of typology that we're coming up with. You know, sometimes uh, certain types in Scripture are not spelled out for us in the New Testament. So is Joseph a type of Christ? I can remember uh, arguing with some guys about this. I was arguing, yeah, I think he is. And they were saying, no, you know, we can't just be flippant like that with Scripture. I said, well, we'll look at the picture here. Is Joseph a type of Christ? We can talk about that. We can discuss that because there's no verse in Scripture that says Joseph was a type of Christ. We know Moses was a type of Christ. We know David was a type of of Christ, I think from that we are to infer that many others are types of Christ. But we don't need to guess. We don't need to wonder when it comes to the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Christ is not just the lamb in general as a sacrificial substitute. He is the fulfillment of this type. He is the Passover lamb. And as with the Passover lamb, he is described as unblemished. Why? Why why does this lamb need to be unblemished? Why does it need to be a, a barely adult? One year, it's just barely become sort of grown. Christ was 30. And he started his ministry, 33 When he was crucified, a male, Jesus is described as unblemished. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19, a lamb without blemish or spot. What does it mean that Christ was without blemish? Well, it doesn't mean that he had no blemishes on his body. It doesn't mean that he had perfect hair. It doesn't mean that he had perfect teeth. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means that Christ was perfect. Perfectly sinless. Hebrews 9.14, Christ offered himself without blemish to God. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We are unrighteous. Not so with Christ. He is perfectly Righteous. He is entirely without defect. He is unblemished. The spotless and sacrificed lamb points to our sinless and sacrificed Savior. So let me just ask you this question. Have you given much thought to the sinlessness of Christ? I heard Paul Washer preach a sermon on this at the Shepherds Conference years ago. It was just it was just earth-shaking in, in my heart, and I think many others have been talked about a lot. But he preached about the sinlessness of Christ. How much glory there is in the sinlessness of Christ. Absolutely unblemished, perfect. Never a single time did Christ do or think or feel anything wrong. Never, ever Ever. He is the sinless, perfect, worthy, acceptable substitute for God's people. So we see the lamb. Now we come to the meal. Look at verses 7 to 11, but we're going to, we're going to wait on verse 7. So we're going to bring verse 7 back in when we look at verses 12 to 13. But I'm going to go ahead and read 7 to 11. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened. 
your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. So what is each household supposed to do with this slaughtered lamb? We've got the lamb. We've got the killing of the lamb at twilight on the 14th day of the month. What are they supposed to do with this now dead lamb? In the previous verses, the repeated word was lamb. And that's one of the ways you interpret Scripture well. It's, just, it's very basic. Just look at repeated words. And what you find is, in those first six verses, lamb, 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 just keeps getting repeated. Well, now what you find repeated is this word eat. Eat, 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 eat. It tells us that there is a particular section here. There's a focus here. And the focus is on eating the lamb. They are to have a meal. A meal in each household. And as we read here, this meal was to be carried out very, care- very carefully. The lamb was to be roasted as a whole by fire, not eaten raw or boiled in water. The fire was quick, and it pointed to the nature of this meal as a sacrifice and an act of consecration. When you think about a, a sacrifice unto the Lord, the smoke going up to the Lord, and the consecration of God's people, a setting apart of God's people to the Lord. It brings us back, I think, all the way to Noah, making a burnt offering to the Lord, a sacrifice to the Lord as he gets off of the ark. This lamb was to be eaten with unleavened bread, bread without yeast, bread that you didn't have to wait on to rise, you didn't have to delay, it was quick. Just as the fire was quick, the bread was quick. And it was eaten, we are told here, with bitter herbs. Why bitter herbs? Well, it was a reminder to the people of the bitter, harsh slavery that they had endured at the hands of the Egyptians for centuries. It was reminding them of what God was saving them from. What God was about to bring them out of. Every bite of that food reminded them of all that they had endured, and all that God was now going to liberate them from. Nothing was to be left behind. This was a holy meal, not to be turned into scraps for dogs or eaten by anyone or anything other than the Israelites. This is not the food for rats. This is for God's set-apart people Alone. So verse 10, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. But probably, this may not be the case for you, but it's the case for me as I read this. The most striking thing is that this meal was to be eaten fully dressed, ready to leave. Now, we probably don't think very much of that because we would have a meal maybe in our home and have, you know, our shoes on and sometimes you're just too lazy to take your shoes off at the door or whatever. Maybe you just don't care. Uh, but we, we're, we're in our homes. We have all of our clothes on. We sit down for our meals, may even have our shoes on. This, we just think nothing of this. But that's not the case here. Verse 11 says, in this manner... You shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. This really is, for for those people, for ancient people, a strange picture. Normally, while eating a meal inside your house, you would have your cloak untucked from your belt. Your sandals would most certainly be off your feet, and your staff, of all things, your walking stick, would not be in your hand. It would be waiting on you at the door, maybe even outside of the door, or just laid up on some shelf, whatever. Certainly wouldn't be in one hand as you're eating with the other. Not so with this very special meal. They must eat it fully, ready to go, as if right in the middle of the meal, Moses himself will come knocking at the door to say, let's go, we're leaving Egypt. And there's no packing. Uh, There's no, let's clean up first. There's no, hold on, we're gonna finish our meal. There's not even, let me grab my stick. It's right out the door. They're ready, ready to go when the word of God comes. Above all, 
This is a picture of faith. It is God showing us the importance of faith. Faith that God will keep his word. Faith in God's power to punish the Egyptians and protect the Israelites. That's a picture of faith as we see these people sitting inside at their tables or wherever they're eating. They're sitting down eating. And they're fully clothed with stick in hand. It is a picture of their confidence in the word of the Lord. It is, it is described for us in Hebrews 11 throughout, but defined for us in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You most certainly would not be sitting there fully clothed, eating, uncomfortably, tucked away with your stick in your hand if you did not have the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it is the way faith looks in our lives as we trust in God. For his future promises. It is Joseph telling his brothers. Hey. When you come into Canaan. When you come to leave Egypt. Bring my bones. No question that it's going to happen. It's a certain thing. It's assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. This is the reason Christians can die well. Christians die unlike other people. Because of this truth. Because in the heart of a Christian, there is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The dying Christian is, as it were, like an Israelite, holding stick in hand, fully dressed, ready to go. As we consider this Passover meal, we anticipate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper that we will celebrate at the end of our service and. Uh, to, to anticipate that, I want to give you a quote here from one commentator named Douglas Stewart. He says this, The ultimate purpose of the Old Testament Passover instruction is to point forward to Christ, to the purpose of his death, memorialized in the ritual of the Lord's Supper that now replaces the Passover. So as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are going back to Passover. But we're not just going back to Passover as the Jews will do each year when they celebrate Passover. We are going back to Passover and then forward to Christ. We are going to the very purpose of Passover. We're not going back to the type when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are going back to the fulfillment in our crucified Savior. We are going back to Calvary. We are going back to Golgotha. We are going back to the cross. All, of course, pointed to in the Passover. So we hear the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 35, when he says, I am the bread of life. To feast on Jesus is our spiritual meal. And it is the only way to have life. Unless we eat of Christ, unless we partake of Christ, unless we feast on him spiritually, we have no life in us. There is no hope apart from eating this meal, which is Christ. So we've seen the lamb, we've seen the meal, and now finally, climactically, we see the blood. Look at verses 7 and then verses 12 to 13. So after describing the killing, the slaughtering, the sacrificing of these lambs, it says this, Then they shall take some of the blood... And put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And then scrolling down, then the meals described after that. And then coming down to verses 12 to 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And then here we go. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It is because of the truth of that last verse that Christians can die well. It is because of the truth of that last verse that we cannot be ashamed or fearful at the thought of Christ's coming. So why is the Passover called the Passover? The answer comes in these verses. 
And what we find is that everything revolves around the blood. Everything. The lamb is slaughtered and eaten. But that's not all. Most importantly, the Israelites must put some of the blood of the lamb on their doorways, on each side and above. Each side of the door and above the door is to be painted in, to be dripping with blood. I can imagine, some of us are a little more conscientious than others, I can imagine if that were me, I'd be putting a ton of blood on those doorposts. Just making sure, <laughs> maybe you're wired that way too. Just, I'd be out there for a little while, covering the lintel and the doorposts, making sure that blood is there. Why do they do this? Verse 12 tells us that God is going to pass through Egypt to strike the firstborn of man and beast, and most significantly to strike a definitive blow against the gods of Egypt, against the entire religious system of Egypt, all the false worship, all the idolatry, all the demonic deception, all the foolish trust in non-entities, these non-existent gods of Egypt. God will execute his judgment. Verse 12 On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And we could see there God saying, I'm going to execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt who are not because I am. God is and they are nothing. Yahweh is God. There is no other. And this final plague will show that definitively. It will strike all the animals associated with the gods of Egypt. So depicted in Egypt by animals. It will strike the son of Pharaoh himself, the heir to the throne. This will be the great definitive blow to the gods of Egypt. Blow after blow after blow we have already seen, but this is the final blow. It has come, and God will be glorified in the eyes of all the people. You know, it's amazing to me as we think about this. God was not just thinking about being glorified among the Egyptians or among the Israelites. We know that because as the people of Israel were going into Canaan, 40 years later, someone like Rahab is discussing what God did 40 years before. The peoples know about what God did. But listen to this. The most read, most famous, most printed book in human history is the Bible. All throughout human history, for thousands of years now, these stories have been told. God has magnified his greatness, not just to ancient peoples surrounding Egypt and the Israelites themselves, but to untold millions and billions of people who have read this story, who have seen God's glory And who have seen God execute his judgments on false gods. Not just the gods of Egypt. But on all idolatry. On all false worship. On all superstition. On everything or anyone who would replace him as king. But back to our question. Why? Do the Israelites have to put blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their houses? Look at verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God is the judge. Of all the earth. He judges sinners. He judges all sinners, irrespective. When he comes through Egypt, he will indeed see the Egyptians in particular. That is the entire focus, that is the entire purpose. As he comes through Egypt, he will see them and strike. But listen. This holy God, this holy judge, 
he will also see the sin of his own people. So there must be sacrifice. There must be death for sin. There must be blood atonement before God's face. There must be substitution if Israelite sins are to be covered, if Israelite firstborns are to be spared. This, of course, is a preparation for the entire sacrificial system. God will see the blood and he will pass over. It is the Passover because God passed over the sins of the people. He saw the blood and he kept going. Rather than destroy them, he passed over them on account of one thing, and it was the blood, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the unblemished sacrificial victim, their only hope. In my mind, as I've said before, this is the greatest picture we have in Scripture for the gospel of Christ. So vivid. So clear. And it makes for us, it makes in our own minds so clear what is the center of the gospel. There is much that we can say about the gospel. Many things that we point to and think about it. And the gospel is like like a spinning diamond. Its riches are untold. Its depth to beyond the deepest point on earth. And yet at the very center of the gospel, the message that must never be neglected, the message that our children must see clearly, clearly, clearly is this picture. When God sees the blood of Christ on us, he passes over our sins. And he does not destroy. That's the gospel. He passes over our sins and he does not destroy. Which means that to anyone who does not have the blood of Christ, he will destroy you. And destruction does not mean cessation of existence. It means eternity in hell. The second death. It means eternal judgment. Hell is real. No matter how much our culture wants to minimize hell as it minimizes all other divine truth, hell is real. And it is the destination of every single human person who does not have this blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what must be believed. Whatever else is believed, if this is left aside, you do not believe the gospel. You do not believe in Christ because you think of him as your buddy or because if you, think, you think of him as some nearby friend. You are in Christ because you have trusted in this reality that the blood of Christ covers us from the wrath of God That he is the substitutionary sacrifice for the forgiveness of our wicked deeds, thoughts, lusts, passions, desires, affections. To go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 to 19. We are told there, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's what we have been ransomed with, with the the precious blood of the lamb, the, the blood, the efficacious, powerful, omnipotent blood of the unblemished lamb. We have been redeemed, liberated, saved by the sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The reason I spoke to you earlier if you're an unbeliever is because this is the heart of the gospel. If you're going to reject Christianity, reject this. This is the heart. But if you reject this, you reject this to your own demise. You reject this to your own peril. 
And you reject this not because you lack evidence. You reject it not because it has not been proclaimed to you clearly in all of creation in general and specifically in God's word. Even today in God's providence, your ears have heard. You reject it because you worship yourself above God and because you are in rebellion against your king and creator. Turn to this Christ and be saved. Remain hard in your heart and be swept away. There is grace. There is kindness. There is love and eternal joy for all who find rest in Christ. I close with these precious words from Isaiah 53, verses 6 to 7. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. If you're not a believer here today, I want you to see this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You might be thinking, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a murderer. Saw a news story this morning about Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not Adolf Hitler. I don't steal people's stuff. I'm a nice person. The problem is, you have gone your own way. You have gone your own way. You were made for the glory of God. We were all made for the glory of God, for his praises to magnify his greatness and his goodness. And the problem is that we have all gone our own way. And if we were honest and we looked at the Ten Commandments in light of the Sermon on the Mount, we would realize we are liars. We are murderers because we hate our brother. We are adulterers because we lust in our hearts. We are self-centered. We need Christ. Without him, we would all perish. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb who was slain to purchase people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We sit here this morning, we're here We come from various ancestries. Lord, you have gathered us just this little expression of your kingdom, of your church, here this morning. And we praise you because you have purchased us with the blood of Christ from a futile, empty, godless, selfish way of life. God, forgive us. Because so often we live that life in practice as though we have not been redeemed by the precious blood of this lamb. God, forgive us for our folly. Forgive us for being conformed to this world. Forgive us for not being transformed by the renewal of our minds, for not presenting ourselves to you in worship as a living sacrifice. Forgive us for petting and playing with the lusts of the flesh, the sins of this world. Forget us for love, forgive us for loving the world, for exalting people and things to your place. Father, forgive us for our selfish disregard of your people, our lack of love for the body of Christ. Forgive us for our neglect of your Holy Word. 
Be merciful to us, God, and we praise you for the blood of our Savior, through whom and through which we are saved. Would you go with us now as we celebrate this picture this morning, hopefully with lots more clarity and lots more intentionality as we think about the death of our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.